welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. Andy Newton is the USA Today bestselling author of The Girls from the Beach, The Girl from Vichy and The Girl I Left Behind. She has a bachelor's degree in history from Washington State University and a master's in teaching. Her new novel, Child for the Reich, is another gripping and emotional World War II historical novel inspired by a true story. Welcome, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. What time? You're in uh, Washington and I'm obviously in Surrey, so we're about eight hours time difference between us. Yeah, it's almost nine in the morning here. So most people, when they think Washington, they think like Washington, D.C. I was asked, oh, do you get to see the Capitol? And like, no, wrong Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong state. Try the other side of the country. So I usually just say, oh, Seattle, but I'm actually about three hours drive away from Seattle. Oh, well, do you know what? I was probably one of those people, but I have actually, I did actually spend my summer partly in Washington and oh yeah that's right you did an yes. incredibly beautiful state it is because my my sister lives in Seattle so I'm very jealous of you now because now I've seen <laughs> it myself it's just stunning <laughs> <laughs> the sky is are so big and the air is so fresh I was just like oh I need to live yeah. here. <laughs> so, it is, yeah, it is so, yeah. I feel lucky. I mean, I, as I get older, I'm even appreciate it more. You know, when you're younger, you're like, oh, I want to get out of here. It's so horrible here. And then as you travel and see the world, you're like, oh, this is kind of nice here. So, Andy, let's let's talk about your current book, The Ch- Child for the Reich. It's um, yes. Tell us about the premise, because it's absolutely fascinating as a, as a concept. I've never heard of anything like it before. Well, it's set in Bohemia in 1944. It's about a Czech mother whose daughter is stolen by the Third Reich. She's kidnapped. And this is the story of the mother going to try to find her and steal her back. This is based on a real program that happened in Nazi Germany where the Third Reich would steal Aryan-looking children. And they would, from all their occupied lands, so they would go into Poland or wherever they were. And if they saw a child that looked... Aryan, they would kidnap them and they would lie to the to the kid and tell them that they were actually stolen and kidnapped themselves and that they needed to come back to Germany and they would indoctrinate them in the Nazi way, put them in these nurseries. And so my story was about I I found I'm going off on the on the question, but I was writing a different book and I came across this program and I was like, oh, my gosh, bookmark this for later. And immediately my mind just went to the mothers. I mean, we can imagine what the child's experience is. But being a mom myself, I'm like, what would that be like? And during war, your child is stolen. You have limited resources, but you're going to go try to get that child back if you can, any way that you can. And what would that be like? Yeah, that's where that's where the idea came from. For sure. That hit me in the heart. Absolutely. That bit. I mean, that scene in particular, the, the standout scene for me was when your protagonist, Anna, and excuse my pronunciation, Dankova, I hope I pronounced yeah. that. Um, has her blonde haired, blue eyed daughter, Ema, ripped from her arms in the in the marketplace by the by the Brown sisters. And my God, I knew it was coming. And yet it was still so shocking. I mean, can you particularly the role of the Brown sisters, which I think a lot of people listening will not have heard of that. They might have heard of the Brown shirts, but tell us a bit about the Brown sisters. Yeah, well, the the brown shirts, as many people know, is just like another arm of, you know, the Nazi Germany. And, um, you know, you they were referred to as the big bad 
ugly guys that came in the middle of the night and, you know, they, they did riots and they were bad. Well, there was also the women um, and they were called the Brown sisters. They're just as evil, but they portrayed themselves as these nice nurses. And so what would happen is they, like, you think about like a Salvation Army nurse or somebody who's gentle and, you know, play, has the uniform on and plays the part, but actually their role was to go seek out children to steal, report back where they were, and then they would be in the nurseries and they would help indoctrinate the kids. You know, they were their nurses, but they were, according to some of the reports, there were some nurses that were nice, but most of them were very, very strict, like, like extreme parenting strict as you would imagine. (laughs) And I think that's what makes it more chilling because almost when you see stormtroopers, brown shirts, that sort of, you know, Nazi SS officers, you expect they come, you know, you know what you expect with that. But because women, we associate them with femininity and motherhood and the domestic sphere, for them to step into that role adds a singularly kind of sinister element to it, I felt reading it. That's what just stood out for me so much. How did you... How did you discover the story of this of this kidnapping program? Because I must confess, I I hadn't heard of it myself until I read your book. Oh, you know, you find so much stuff when you're researching. <laughs> and at the time, I was writing a book called The Girls from the Beach, which really has my heart. I love that book. It's not incredibly sad, but once I went down that road of the child kidnapping program, you know, immediately you're, you're sad and you're, and you click, I clicked on a picture. So it started with a picture and I saw this cute little boy and I have, I have sons and he was blonde and he's just so cute. And he was like maybe two and a half, three. And his story was that he would kidnap. And this was the picture from his childhood, but he didn't know anything about his real parents. And after the war, it came out like where he was from, his parents and the story of, what, of how he was kidnapped. And then he also had his own story of how he was adopted. And he thought his parents were his parents. And I'm just like beside myself going, what is this crazy program? And so I started I started researching it out and then you see more pictures. There's actually a picture. It's so horrible. There's no real explanation about it, but I mean, you can kind of infer there's um, what looks like SS that are grabbing a girl. She clearly it's black and white picture, but she has blonde hair and she they're pulling her from the mom in a crowded marketplace. And I'm like, they, they literally snatched them off the streets, but a lot of the Brown sisters, the nurses, and going back to what you were talking about with women, is that they played off those sympathies because they would go around and, and give out candy and pieces of bread to the kids and be like, oh, we're here, you know, here's here's your treat. And then they would ask the kids, hey, do you have any brothers and sisters at home that look like you? Where do you live? Oh, that house over there. And then they would just, they would literally go into villages and walk around, give out treats, record all the data, give it to the SS, and then they would organize plans to abduct. It's it's got it's sort of like a 20th century Pied Piper, isn't it? Or or the child snatcher, except actually what they were doing was grooming, wasn't it? I mean, on a kind of national level. Yes. Uh, so when you discovered that, I mean, I can tell it was a visceral reaction the way, obviously, listening to this, you can't see it, but your hands just went to your heart when you saw that yeah. like, the boy being ripped from the marketplace. Yes. Was that like a light bulb moment, even though you were writing or researching another novel, did you just think, I have to base a novel around that? Well, I don't 
particular, here's the, here's the, here's the issue I have with this book is that there are moments of sadness and there's moments of happiness. And in order to go and get those sad moments, I had to go there too. I feel like if I'm good at anything with my writing, I feel like I, I, I can do emotion pretty well. And I didn't really think about it beforehand. I just thought, uh -huh. oh, wouldn't it be interesting if this woman's child was stolen, and but she, she goes to steal her back and then there's problems because the child is being indoctrinated. Ooh, that sounds like a good story. It is. And then I jeopardy. start writing it and I'm like, I got to write this part where she's kidnapped. Like I have to write this. I need to go through those emotions. I need to think about this. And that's where I was like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? And I'm like, well, it's too late now. <laughs> yeah. You're in. You're in. No, that's a really I'm interesting, in. interesting point that you raise actually about that. Cause I, struggle somewhat with that as well particularly in scenes that I find traumatic where where do you draw a line before you you put so much of yourself into writing don't you you have to be emotionally invested and it can take its toll it can be emotionally draining particularly so emotionally draining scenes so emotionally draining this it really was it was but but I mean it's such a good book I mean I oh, think that a reader will yeah. And, and, you know, I'm talking about like months it took me to go there and get there and the reader's going to read it in like less than five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but I, you think, know? I think you, the page and the writing absorbs the intensity of those emotions. Cause I was totally, when I was reading, it, I was thinking this book is incredibly emotional. You've written it with empathy and care and that shines off the page. You're not just writing it, you're feeling it almost. Oh yeah. Yes. I felt it. This book definitely has hope in it. I mean, obviously we had to have the child stolen, but it's a story of redemption. It's a story of courage and, and mothers and the bravery and the strength. And that's, that's the crux of the book. Yeah. And that's um, what I love about World War II novels, putting yourself in the shoes of those mothers and the impossible situations they found themselves in unimaginable to us today, because you can feel your way into that experience through their eyes. Yes, for sure. I had to distance myself from that. When I started this book, I kind of had an idea. I was like, well, you know, that there is going to be a kidnap scene and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, you know what? I need to make this character a girl because I have sons. And so that was me separating oh, myself a little bit of it because otherwise I would take that with me every night. These like feelings. And I don't know, have you ever been like writing and you're writing an intense scene and you feel your heart like kick yeah. up? Like yeah. you're into it, you know, and you're writing. Yeah, you're in fight or flight. Your your body's reacting yes. on a physical level. Oh, for yes. sure. I, I often find that if I've been writing something, particularly harrowing or researching something that's awful, like when I was writing about the scene in the Little Wartime Library with 173 people, a lot of whom were children, were crushed to death on the steps. Sometimes I, I can't feel like I can't breathe. I'm in that stairwell with them. And yes. You need to go there in order to feel your way into your character's experience. But at the same time, I can like after that book, I did get terrible ear infections and, you know, was physically drained afterwards. You kind of put yes. yourself through the ringer. Yes, you definitely put yourself through the ringer. Yeah. And then and then, you know, the thousand times you have to read your book over oh, and over again and the, yes. and the editing and the structurals and it's like reliving this. Yeah, over and over. God, we're like probably putting people off once. listening to this now. God, you're going to make yourself ill. You're going to you're going to torment yourself day and night. But it's still but important I, for all that. 
I hope that the main the main part of the book was to come away with a feeling of strength and hope and the enduring qualities of a mother and a child sure. and going to the ends of the earth for them. And so, yeah, there there is the sad part where she gets stolen, which isn't a a shocker to know that, but yeah. it's, it's 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 a powerful moment. Yeah, no, it does, and uh, for sure, and and hope and love is is what shines from the page as well. But it does raise so many questions, and that's what a good book should do. But one of the things I get that kept coming back at me was this issue of the Brown sisters. And do you think, like as a society, we are more shocked at acts of violence committed by women than men? Now, obviously, in this case, they were sort of brainwashed. There was Nazi ideology, and so forth. But still, it's women, isn't it? I mean, what? Who? And it got me thinking: What's the average? such thing as an average but what's the profile of a brown sister who was she why would she do that what woman would go into a marketplace and steal somebody else's child well someone who's hopelessly devoted to the nazi cause i mean they were the real deal i mean they believed wholeheartedly into it to the point of uh sinister i mean they were that they were basically had the mindset of an ss officer um, and all the bad things that go along with that. But they were women and that most of them were single and they just had this drive to make sure that their race survived. And it's so crazy to yeah. think that to, to no ends, you know, yeah. they knew that they were stealing other people's children. They knew it. The Brown sisters would create birth certificates for the, for the kids that they kidnapped. And then they would adopt the children out to German families and they lied to the German families. So the German families thought that they were getting German children also. They had no idea. They were not involved in this. So a lot of, uh, you know, they had a population crisis because a lot of people were dying in the war. And a lot of couples who maybe had their son at like 18, 19, you know, they're still a perfectly good age to have, you know, a three or four year old come in into their home. And that's, kind of what they were feeling. So uh, some, some families were, you know, only had one child or maybe two and their son died in the war and they, they wanted to replace that void. So they would adopt, you know, what they thought was a German child. And so this is where it gets really crazy. And I didn't write about this in the book, but uh, I read uh, tracing reports of the, you know, the tracing agents that tried to find these children after the war. They, the parents were in denial. They're like, no, these, these are German children. Look, I have the, I have the birth certificate. And then the tracing agent would ask things like, well, did they talk when they got here? Did they, did they, did they understand you? Because a lot of them were Polish or Czech or had some other language. And they're like, oh no, they were just shy. You know, they were even in in denial themselves. And then, you know, the kids, they, yeah. So it's an an extraordinary subject. And it it made me think like, I mean, this is relative history. You know, this is only 80 years on nearly from the end of World War II. I always struggle with this point or or keeps circling around in my mind that how it was that Germany, this previously cultured society could reach a point that that sort of thing, that ideology became so normalized and acceptable and that the, the dehumanization of people was so, it seems such a relatively easy slide. Do you think sort of eight decades on that we've learned anything from the lessons of history. Oh God. I'm asking you this because with your history, your, your, you know, your historian hat on, it's a difficult question. I know. Well, here, I I think people forget 
one of the most fascinating things whenever I was going to school was the idea that history repeats itself. And my mind was like, well, why would it repeat repeat itself? Because we know from the past and the lessons, but things are quickly forgotten. Example, this program happened, you know, 80 years ago and it's appear I didn't know about it. A lot of the readers are shocked that this happened. One, I think I got a review that was like called it bizarre history. Like, oh no, this didn't happen. I'm like, no, this really, really happened. It's happening again today with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, I, yeah. I've seen the reports and uh, I can't remember the number. It's a huge number of Ukrainian children are, are stolen, taken back to Russia. They're trying to adopt them out. And yeah, it's crazy. And that's why I think that historical fiction has such an important role to play in that, because it's the authors like you coming out and researching those elements that have just drifted into the mists of time and been forgotten and resurrecting it and people informing and, and learning about these parts of history. Because like you say, our memories are short and we do we do repeat the, the mistakes of the past. Look at the Holocaust, you know, never again. And yet it did happen again and again. Genocides all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the warning signs like, hey, this there, there's a warning sign. Let's learn from history. This happened again. Let's not let this happen again. But it it, it does. It's so sad. It's it's that's strange fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, woo. <laughs> yeah. So how did you go about researching it from because because obviously you're based in Washington. Did you w- yeah. was that a struggle? I mean, obviously, there's great archive access online now. But what's your sort of go to methods of research? Well, my methods of research is just to research the event because I write a fictional story, but it's set in, you know, it has to be probable to me. I'm not going to put anything in the story that that wasn't plausible. And I research out everything. I mean, I know maybe I, I'm sure most historical authors do. I've never come across one where I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm sure that there are, but I put so much effort into the tiniest details. In this book, in this particular book, I researched the event. So I got nonfiction books and that kind of thing. But there's a plethora of information online, articles, memoir, lots of recorded history. But the breadth of my, I mean, what really pulled this together, because I'm like, oh, I'm onto something. I could write something, but I really need to know what the nurseries were like. I need to know what the nurses were like. Yeah. Give me those little tiny stories. Yeah. I need those and I can sail with those. And I found that in, um, by finding that the children that the stolen, the stolen children had sued Germany not that long ago, maybe five years ago, um, a whole bunch of them, they sued Germany to try to, for their pain and suffering and they lost. I'd have to look back at my notes, but I think that they got something miserable, like $7,000 or something to pay them off or something ridiculous, but they, they lost, they wanted reparations and they deserve it. And they were kidnapped and Germany owes them money and they took them to court and they lost. And, but during that court case, all the stories that came out of that, and there's a documentary that was done. I learned the most. Oh, how wonderful, oh, not wonderful. They had to go through that process, but as an author, you need to know what color were the walls of the nursery? What were the, what were the uniforms? Yes. How did they refer to each other? If you're going to make it authentic, yep. those tiny details that count for so much, isn't it? 
Yeah. And that's, that's where I was able to pull it all together. A lot of the nurseries, I mean, they didn't survive. The kidnapping program was part of the larger Lebensborn program, which was also a hush-hush program. So in case anybody doesn't know what that is, that's where Aryan women would have children, usually with SS officers, and they would immediately, after maybe a week or so, put the baby into a nursery for it to be adopted out. And they were 100% into this program. They thought they were doing something beautiful for the nation. But the program wasn't enough. There weren't enough women having babies to fulfill this population crisis. So they came up with the kidnapping program. Oh, I see. Um, so that spans off the back of that. Yes. And a lo- the the general public, like the, the older generation, they didn't like Lebensborn program because they didn't like the idea of premarital sex. So there was a lot of, you know, the older generation uh, that didn't like this. So they kept the nurseries, they kept the Lebensborn homes kind of private. So there would be like a big building with no signs on it, kind of, you know, they wouldn't like advertise, hey, this is where, this is the breeding house, you know, and they did the same with the nurseries. They, they kept them undercover, very low key signage. Most people didn't even know that they were there. They just thought, oh, it was an orphanage. They didn't really know what was going on inside. And so there was the secrecy of that. And then, of course, all the documents got destroyed after the war. And so to find the nurseries and to know where they are, it's just what the children remember. Yeah, that's such a rewarding moment, isn't it? Where you're sort of hunting around in the past, trying to to find those clues. And then you get that, that whatever it be, like testimony, oral archives, whatever it is, that really you just know, okay, now I can write a novel. But it's so interesting you saying about the Liebensborn program because I had interviewed another author um, on the podcast, Anna Stewart, who wrote The Midwife of Auschwitz, and she told me about this program. And in fact, bizarrely, I think one of ABBA was born as a result of that yeah. program. I know, you yeah. talk about surprises in history. You know, you learn these things. It blows your mind. I'd never heard of this. So I feel like conversa- conversation with you and, and Ari is like joining the dots in my mind. Just fascinating though. I and I talking of surprises in history, I I love it. And I kind of sense talking to you and reading your your work that you instinctively understand that too, like teasing out and exploring those lesser known elements of, of 20th century history, like the Nazi program. Do you consciously seek out the forgotten? Or are you thinking with more of a novelist hat on, like, oh, that's good. That's not something that's been covered before. Or do you or are you thinking uh, yeah. that consciously at all? Uh yeah, I don't I don't want to I don't want to write what's already out there. I want to do my own spin. And so part of that involves finding something that hasn't been thoroughly talked about. I I think that there is a book out there that I've never found a book that does anything like what mine does. But I think that there somebody in a review compared my book to, oh, somebody else wrote something about the kidnapping program. So I think that there's a character that was kidnapped or something. I wasn't, I, you know, I researched it. I I pulled up every book that I could. I didn't find anything that was remotely similar. So then that's when I went for it. So yeah, I do put my author hat on because in the end, I want my book to be bought by the publisher. And in order to do that, you have to be a little bit unique, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I get that. Absolutely. Why do you think, because historical fiction is such a buoyant market, it, it's huge. I know, especially in the US, um, in particular, World War Two, as opposed to say World War One. Why do you think we have this voracious appetite for it, for sort of 20th century historical fiction? What does it fulfill in us, do you think? Well, I can tell you what it 
fulfills for me just from a writer standpoint is that the external and the internal conflicts are awesome. <laughs> I mean, you just can't go wrong there. Right. Yeah. But also, okay. So my grandpa was in world war II and um, he passed away within the last 20 years and he told me stories growing up. And, and so the world war II vets, they're like my, my dad's age now, back when I was a kid and they didn't seem that um, it didn't seem that long ago. Now, now we're talking, Oh, it's 80 years ago. But to me, when I was growing up, there were a lot of world war II vets around and it was just normal. And so to me, it's relatable. Mm -hmm. These people aren't like way off, like in the 1800s and we don't know anybody from the 1800s, yeah, yeah. but I definitely know people who were in World War II. And so that makes it relatable to me. I think that the angle that I've chosen is to write about gritty war stories about women was because the women were kind of left to their own devices here. And then we kind of rose up and we took control. You know, we were in the factories and, you know, we, we made the world run. Yeah. Um, and while the men were away fighting. And I think that there's so many stories there. And I think that the, um, the, the power of female power and what women were capable of just kind of spawned out of this area. Plus, plus in just another kind of aspect of how just somebody who maybe might be 20 years old or 30 years old can identify with is that in the forties, you know, even though now we have smartphones and all that kind of stuff, but the technology wasn't that far off. You know, that everybody had phones, <laughs> access to phones. You know, we had, we had, there was radios, you know, we had fashion, we had homes with bathrooms. We had, you know, these, when you write about 1800s, you know, you don't have those things and people, I don't think people can um, necessarily relate as much to that, but I think in the forties, you can definitely make it more relatable. Yeah, I think that's the key, isn't it? Relatability and thinking what we might have done in that situation. How would we have stepped up and fulfilled those roles? And what would we have done? You know, would we have been exceptional like some women at, say, you know, the Bletchley Park co-breakers or would we have been a naffy canteen serving stewed tea? It's always just a, a <laughs> swirling, you know, I always kind of figure what would I have done in the Blitz? It's just it's endlessly fascinating. And it's so lovely to see a whole new raft, a sort of generation of readers come into these books. I went mm -hmm. to this vintage festival um, a couple of weeks back and it was just full of young women in their 20s dressing in 1940s fashion, beautiful, like, you know, evoking that that era so beautifully and just so into the history, not just the fashion and the, and the sartorial side of it, but the the history of it. And, you know, everything, they knew everything. And I think that's such a fantastic way to learn about the past. It was really heartening for me as an author to see that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, you can learn a lot whenever you put on a vintage dress and you, yeah. you how it feels. And it, I think in my first book, my first book that I wrote, I gave it to somebody to um, read. Like the first time somebody ever read my work, it was it was it was horrible at the time, but, um, but I talked about, uh, the characters walk into a shop, right. And it's, um, 1940s Germany. And I talked about the tag on the item and the comment was, did they have tags back then? <laughs> I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And I think that, uh, <laughs> even just the fashion, I think somebody else one of my characters was women was wearing women's trousers. And at the time, I mean, I had so many pictures of women wearing these trousers, you know, basically they're like linen pants. And somebody wrote me back and said, I just can't get my mind about around this, that they wore pants. 
Oh, and I'm like, I had oh my exactly gosh. the same. I had exactly the same. I had somebody wearing slacks or trousers as because yeah. I knew that women had. I had seen the photos. I'd spoken to women who told me that. And she came back and no, no, they wouldn't have worn that. And it's, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are very willing to offer up an opinion when they view something as an anachronism that they spotted. Yes. Quite pleased about that indeed. So it's sort of, yes. yeah, we're always on the kind of radar for that to to kind of weed out those things that jar people and uh, that, that aren't correct for the time period. But I'm with you on pants. Women were wearing suits <laughs> yes. or slacks, whatever you want and to call I'm it. Like... They were in trousers. <laughs> Yes, yes. And also, by the way, they had sex in cars. That was like the biggest. I got so many comments on that. I'm like, no, they would never. Oh, no, this would Why never would happen. They not have had like, sex in uh... a car? I read a wonderful <laughs> quote once. I think it I was, oh, I can't remember the name of the author, Quentin Crisp, I think. And he just said that every alleyway was a soft bed. So yeah, they weren't <laughs> just doing it in cars. They were doing it stand up against an alleyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, a, I, I don't know. I think maybe some people do get the idea of what the past may have been like because yeah. they they think it's all square and narrow. Yeah. No, or they have it was messy. It's just, yeah, it was as messy as it is today. Women got pregnant. Yes. Block babies. You know, the, yes. the difference is that the ramifications were more dire for women back then because, you know, if you're pregnant out of wedlock, you have no choice really. But either get married or give your baby away. Yeah. Or or backstreet abortion. But these things did indeed happen. But I love that mm-hmm. we're talking about sex in cars and alleyways. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone there. <laughs> so Addy, you touched on this earlier about giving your writing an emotional feel. And I definitely would agree with that. That was one of the, the standout things for me. How do you go there? How do you create such well-drawn, fully fleshed out characters that really take you on an emotional roller coaster? Has that all well, just come naturally to you or have you really had to work on that? First of all, thank you for saying that. I'm like, oh, but it's true. The biggest compliment ever. Oh my gosh. Thank you. You know, I just try to, I give them as many flaws as that, that I can that are relatable. And like, I try to think what else it, it's important that even if you don't write it into the page of what their background is, you know, as the author, what their background is. So like, if it's a mom, what is she dealing with? She's dealing with this, this, and this in the background, you know, and to add these little things in so that the reader doesn't think, oh, this is just an information dump. This is just little things added here and there to build the character so that you get a sense of wow, she's, she's dealing with this, she's dealing with that. And then, so when she has the breakdown, it's not just over the main event, it's everything is crashing down. And I think that we, especially as moms or anyone out there, we understand that because we have so much going on. And so whenever something bad happens to us, it's not just that event. We pull everything from that day that screwed us up, you know, into it. And so that's what I try to, I try to imagine what else she's dealing with what else is going on, where her mind is. I saw a, I saw an Instagram reel where it was like, it was a mom and she was doing dishes. And it said, uh, this is what a mom thinks of doing dishes. And you can see these little bubbles pop up. Right. And she's like, oh, I have to take, I have to take Charlie to the school. Oh, what am I going to pack for lunch? Yeah. Oh, I have to pay that bill. Oh, I have to do this. And there's like 20 little bubbles yeah. that pop up. And then they show the dad and he's just like washing dishes. <laughs> oh, what time's football on? You know, and that's yeah. it. Anyone listening to this will be nodding ahead and relating to that. I certainly do, because that's just the reality of most women's lives. But that is such a good technique, really, isn't it, for thinking about how to create those fully fleshed out characters to give them the backstory. So they're real women. And I listened to a really interesting interview. I think it was with Jojo Moyes. And she was 
who is really known for her characterization. And she says that she stress tests her character. She regularly puts them in situations that they don't have to appear, that don't come up in her book, but it, as a way of getting to know them better. So she might say to herself, what would my character do if she saw a man kicking a dog in the street? How would she react? Um, oh. What she got in her handbag? And, and so she kind of takes it out of the book and into life. And in doing so, then gets to know her characters much better. And I'm really, that really stuck with me. Um, that sticks with me too. I need to try that. <laughs> right. Tell you what else I did that really helped. And I must remember to do this with an expert. I was interviewed by, um, it was a blogger. And she said, I would like you to interview your characters. And I was like, what? And she said, you know, as if after the book has come out, can you? So for me, she's like, go and interview Cl- uh, Clara and Ruby in the underground library and ask them as if you were the journalist sitting asking them the stories and it was such a fascinating way to get to know them because they were asking they were answering my questions it sounds so weird interviewing your own characters but trust me it is such a good way to get deeper under the skin of it and get to know them so I might start that start of the process interview your characters before you start writing I'm actually that actually would serve me really good right now with the book that I'm writing now because how would she work I'm in the first half of the book and I'm like would she really do that? I don't know. You know, for me, I'm still kind of figuring them out. Yeah, it's when I go back to the second pass that I really know what they're doing. But that yeah. is, sounds like a fascinating way yeah. to get to know your characters. I think, so. I think so. But you're so right. I have the same thing. So when I get to the second half of the book, I know them really well by mm-hmm. that point. And they do things that take me by surprise. And so often when you go back to the start of the book and they seem quite clunky and two-dimensional. Yeah. yeah and you think, oh, I didn't know yeah. that at all. Then you have to go back and rewrite the, the start. Yep. Oh, this isn't you at all. You would not say this. And yeah. And so. <laughs> That's so interesting. So what's your, well, I always ask this of authors, how much do you plot in advance? Are you a contractor <laughs> like me? Do you like to know what's going on, where your characters are going to go, how the story is going to end? Or do you just sort of wing it? Do you just turn up to the empty page and and write and see where it goes? I'm a little bit of both. I have a rough outline. I usually try to do my characters sketches beforehand. I write a lot of stuff, a lot of names that get changed and changed and changed just because I need to feel, I need to feel that name. Um, and sometimes it, I, I just have a, a fake name that I plug in there and change later. And then I have all this content. I have character backgrounds. I have event, um, you know, uh, synopsises of events and why this person is coming here and their story and uh, just pages. And then I never look at it again. <laughs> I just put it to the yeah. side and I write, I write kind of like a, like an outline of how it's supposed to go. And of course that outline changes as I go along, but I mainly keep a notebook with me at all times. And I, I write the repeating information in there. So like if my, if my uh, character has like a certain saying that she says, throughout and by the end of the story it has a greater meaning like example in a, a child for the reich the mom anna and her uh, daughter emma they start out where emma asks her mom to tell her a story it's a story about the woman from prague and that story is her mom and her mom starts to tell the story and the daughter begs to hear more of the story but she she's having a tough time telling the story because it was her life before the war. She has a lot to reconcile with there. And so she kind of tells little bits and pieces, but, but it's a, it's a theme 
and the story story completes itself by the end of the book. So I have to write myself notes about that as I'm going through. So usually when I start a new chapter, I flip over my notebook and I actually write out, you know, chapter seven and I write down really quick bullet points of what's supposed to happen. And then I look at my larger outline and see, okay, yeah, this fits. And then I do my best to stick with there. That's a clever way of doing it. That's quite a kind of a loose structure that allows you creativity, but you're still keeping you on track, uh, especially in terms of themes. I really like that because all good stories should have themes, shouldn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's what I try to get because the event itself, there's so many different ways to show vulnerability, let's say. And then when it gets down to that point, you might think, well, this, this actually would sound silly if I wrote this. And now what's a different way that I can write this, but at least I have my themes and the different bullet points that kind of carry me through. But, you know, sometimes within, in the middle of the novel, I'll be like, wow, I never even followed my outline. Yeah. Because but that's when the magic happens where you go off on and your characters, presumably you hope have, have taken shape and life and go off and do walk off the page and do things that surprise you. That's what you want, yes. I suppose, in some ways, isn't it? Yes. Yes, for sure. Oh, it's just a never ending, fascinating subject for me, the craft of writing and how people do it and the way they write. It's just, it's endlessly fascinating because it's not formulaic, is it? Everybody has their own unique take on it. Everybody is different. I know somebody who loves, I used to make a joke about the post-it people, you know, they would get post-its and put them up on the wall and they have these diagrams and that just, that's a killer for me. It's too sterile for me. I, also get quite stressed at the sight of neon post-its stuck all over my office I just don't like the sight of it I'd much rather have a mood board like say for my book that's coming out in February next year set in the Channel Islands I got a whole board and I stuck pictures and maps and and sayings and photographs and for me that really kind of gave me a much more instant emotional connection to that story oh yeah that um, I like that I like a mood board for sure and yeah. I love that I love a map. I don't know what it is about that. Oh, I love maps. <laughs> I have one framed. I, I love them. I think it's it's like really you get older, you just, you just. I, I should do a book where the characters are obsessed with a map. <laughs> the map, yeah, secrets of the map girl. We'll find something. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so let's. We've done that. One. T- tell me a bit about your routine, Andy. How does that? Um, as such, I know you're a mom and, and it's kind of, you have to focus it around that, but do you try to stick to a loose routine? I definitely try to stick to it. Yeah, my kids leave about 7.20 in the morning and I've already been up and make their lunches and that kind of thing. My oldest, she doesn't really take a lunch. She's a, a senior in high school. So he usually drives to lunch with his friends and stuff, but I usually have to get up because he forgot to wash something. <laughs> And I have to get up early and make sure all that's done. But when, as soon as they leave the house about 720, um, husband leaves too, I finish my coffee and that's when I go through, Um, of course, when I wake up, I check my email because I'm eight hours behind. So I am waiting for that email from my agent and my editor. And then, uh, yeah. Because of course you're agents and publishers are are London based and obviously in, in America. So that's a, yeah, time difference. So I go through my emails, go through social and wind down from the busyness of morning, have my cup of coffee. And then I get out my notebook before I look at my outline, before I look at any pages. And I, I feel like this is the best thing for me. I write out what I want to write that day and how I feel like my mind is most clear then. And I write out exactly what themes, maybe little ideas, how the characters can bring these certain things in. And then 
I go and I sit down and usually it's from nine to 10 in the morning. And then I stop at three. That's really good. So you write out your, you're holding yourself accountable really, aren't you? By yes. setting out your intentions. I might try that. That's a really good idea, actually. It works for me because this is my job and I have to treat it that way. If I treat it like a hobby, then it will never get done. And, and also I think everybody else thinks that, that they could just pop on by or be like, oh, we're meeting for lunch. Why'd you come? And I'm like, well, you know, if I was working at an office, you wouldn't be asking me this, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I've actually told my dad, he walks by all the time. My God, I love my dad. He walks by all the time. And I told him, I go, listen, don't bug me. From 10 to two, because if I usually stop writing at three, but if, if he pops over between two and three, I'm not going to get angry, but he'll walk by. And sometimes it's between that time and he'll call me from the other side of the street and be like, Hey, Andy. And I'm like, are you standing outside? Oh, so that's breaking my heart. Like I know your writing is sacrosanct, but at the same time, I have to leave your dad. And, and so, yeah, I like, yes. And so what he doesn't know is that I had already told myself that anytime my dad comes by, it doesn't matter what time of the day it is. I'm right, letting him right. in. We're having coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case he's listening to this. Yeah. Know, but you, do you know what you are, right? You have to be, you have to be fairly ruthless over your time. Because it is yes. just that you, there, there, there will always be something to call upon your attention in your time. And so you have to safeguard it and honor it. And that is the only way the yes. books get written. And, and then you can be, you know, treated as a professional is to be absolutely ruthless around your time and regimented. And and I think yes. that's a misconception that because it's a creative industry, we're just wafting around writing whenever we feel like it. But no, it's a job. It's an industry and you have to treat it with due professionalism. Yes. And it's, you know, it's stressful, you know, and sometimes you set, set out to, I, I have a goal of a thousand words, words a day. And sometimes I'll only get a hundred or 200 because yeah. I erased so many other ones. You but know, if it's there are good because, 200 words, you know, it, yes. Like I worked all day for that sentence. And, but then I'm looking at my calendar. I'm like, Oh, and we were talking about this before we started recording. It's like, I'm behind already. Like I'm looking at my calendar going, I'm behind. And if I don't get this done, if I'm not at this chapter by Christmas, this is going to be bad. And uh, so I'm working, you know, it's, you know, we have our stresses oh. and nobody else sees that. They probably think that we're at home, you know, sit on the couch, tip, tap, top, yeah. top, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not realizing that actually deadlines are what well, they're called. It's just the fear of the deadline. It's the word dead in the sentence that yeah, puts no, the fear yes. into you. <laughs> yes. They're not called easy lines. They're deadlines. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so, Andy, uh, uh, oh, I could talk to you all day about this. It's so interesting. Easy line. That's it. I need. To, oh, I'm aware you do have a book to write, so I am gonna, I am gonna let you <laughs> crack on with it. But I always interview three payout questions because it's it's very revealing um, and interesting. But what is your favorite childhood book? If you could nail it down to one. Probably, and this is silly, I read it over and over and over again, and it was a kind of like a board book, kind of a picture book, and it's called the, I, I think this is the title, The Ox with the Rocks in His Socks. Oh, I never heard of it. I, I like loved the sound of it. that book. I kept it with me, and I think that that was, it was, I think I read it like in kindergarten, first grade, and it was like the one that I could read, you know, I knew my words, and I knew how to read by then, and it, so I carried it around, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna look that up. I love that title, "The Ox at the Box." Oh, and then and then I um when I was in first grade, the teacher would let us read a book to the class, and I was 
oh, so into this. I'm like, I'm reading to the class. And so the, the thing was, we had to read the book to her first and we couldn't get one word wrong. And I read a Dr. Seuss book. Oh my gosh, I don't even know the name of it now. Um, and I got the word eyebrows wrong. And she's like, oh, go, go back and read it. And I, oh, I try, I struggled with that word so bad. And I, worked on it, worked on it. Finally, I read it to the class and it was an impressionable moment for me. Like it was like, I had made it in first grade when I read really? this book to the class. And then I was a teacher for like a minute and I taught first grade and here I am in first grade. And it was my last day teaching. And, uh, I had that book and I thought, and I went into the library. I was like, Hey, I need a book to read to the class. And she goes, Oh, how about this one? And it was the same Dr. Seuss book. And I started crying. I'm <gasps> like, Oh my gosh. She was like, I'm going to give this to you. And I'm like, Oh, I can't handle this. And I read it to the class. I thought that is such a weird yin and yang Ooh, moment. Serendipity, <laughs> isn't it? I love that. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. That's the power of a childhood book to move you to tears. Mm -hmm. isn't it? What about libraries? What is your favorite library? It doesn't have to be your childhood one necessarily anywhere that you visited. I Oh my gosh, I was at the University of Washington in August. I don't know if you had a chance to go up into the university district when you were in I Seattle. Didn't, and I wish I had, because I think I've, I've heard about this, about the university generally. I'd love to visit it. There is a library there. It's the Harry Potter Library. Oh. And it looks like the Harry Potter Library. No. In is, the university? Yes. And it is so gorgeous. It is freaky. I'm, I was like taking pictures and my son, we went there for a college tour and my son was like, stop taking pictures. Come on, <laughs> you got online. it. You're in a Harry Potter and, library. Uh, it was so pretty. And I was like, oh my gosh, I would love to just sit down here and do some work. But I like, I like my old hometown library. It's comfortable to me. I remember going there as a kid all the time. And just, I was a big nonfiction reader when I was a kid. I didn't really read novels until I got older. It was all nonfiction, which would explain why I went into history. Yeah, for sure. That's mm -hmm. so interesting. And, you know, uh, in every case, you see that libraries make writers, particularly the people that come on and they talk about it and their relationship with libraries. You see how, what important role it plays. Now, yeah. just finally, if you were sent off to a desert island with only one book, what <laughs> would it be? Definitely not one of my own because... <laughs> <laughs> because I, once I get that, that printed cut or once it's sent off, I never want to crack it open again because no, you know, there's the always same. that sentence I wish I could fix. Or I never read the know? books once I get the, once it's out. God, no. What if you read it? Yeah, no, no, see, a I don't. sentence or a, oh no. no. Oh yeah. So for sure, not one of my own. I do have this famous, I, it's not famous, my favorite book. I'm going to just grab it. I actually have but I have like eight copies of it right now. And that's Ooh. because, so this is called, I don't know if you can see that. It's called Nisei Daughter by Monica Sohn. Oh, I never heard. Um, and it's um, it's about the internment camps in Seattle. And she's passed away now, but her whole story is down there where T-Mobile Park is now, down there where the baseball and the football stadiums are. It, was, it takes place down in there. And it's her life um, in an internment camp and growing up in Seattle and the racism involved. And it's narrative um, nonfiction. It's, it's her memoir. And it is riveting. I love it. And when I taught a class at the... I taught community college for a couple semesters and we did, they didn't have money to supply the books and the, the students weren't going to buy the books, So I bought them for them. They were like $3 a piece. I got them off eBay and I'm like, we're doing a unit on this book. And we did. And afterwards I gave them all the copy to take home. And I ended up with eight, my own. I love 
the book, Nisei Daughter. Who was interned in Seattle? Sorry, my, I don't know this part of, of Seattle history, but why were they interned? Who were they? Why were they interred? Uh, Japanese Americans. So there were the first generation. So what happened is the Japanese Japanese parents came over before the war and they were born in Japan. This, this is what Nisei daughter is about. And so the Nisei are, they're Americans. They're Japanese Americans. So they are Americanized. You know, they, they eat burgers and hot dogs and listen to, um, you know, music that their parents don't. They're, they're, such a cultural difference compared to their parents. And so when Pearl Harbor happened, they had the Japanese go into internment camps. So there were a couple near, there was one in Puyallup, Washington, which is near Seattle. And there was one in Idaho that I know of. And so they had to store their belongings and hopefully with friends. And then they were, it wasn't a concentration camp or anything, but it was, it wasn't pleasant But you um, because they were basically like, yeah, like temporary housing and it was a camp. So now we have teenagers who are 100% American and they're they're with their parents, the Issei. And, uh, you know, there's, it's just, it's such a great book because of the cultural differences and how the American kids and their parents and what is going on in America um, and then the racism aspect of it. Of course, I bet after Pearl Harbor, it must have it must have been horrendous. So, would you not? Are you not tempted to set a novel in one of those camps? Because yeah, I would love to read about that. I mean, I find that subject fascinating. When we went to Seattle, I remember being surprised that there was this big Japanese community in Washington State, and I think wasn't it connected to do with whaling and that industry, which is why. So oh, yeah, the Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, would would you be tempted? I think I would be tempted only if I was to co-write with maybe a Japanese American author that would be uh, able to tap okay. into that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so that yeah. way I can take, uh, I could take the role of, um, there were, there were stories where the kids, the Japanese American kids growing up, you know, in American schools and that sort of thing, you know, their friends, you know, they look like me and, um, you know, they, you know that movie, Big Fat Greek Wedding, my Big Fat yeah, Greek yeah. Wedding, you know, where she goes uh, in the story, she goes, she's at lunch and she has her Greek lunch and it smells and all the other kids are like eating their bologna sandwiches and they're like, ooh, you know, it's the same kind of thing that happened. And I think that for for me as like an American to write an American, yeah. uh, a white American to write a yeah. white American character who's maybe best friends with somebody who's in the camp. And that would be really good. That would be a really good co-written Yeah, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, a good co-written project Mm -hmm. like that would be fascinating. Yeah. Well, well, Andy, I'm so grateful for your time because I know how precious it is to writers and and especially working mums. So it's been really lovely to get your insights and, and just get, yeah, share your writing life with us. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Oh, pleasure was all mine. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.